You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Our desire is to honor and share the best parts of the Christian contemplative traditions so that this collective wisdom might serve the flourishing of humanity, all beings, and all of creation. My name is Ben Kesey, and I lead the development team at the Center for Action and Contemplation. I want to thank all of you who are generous donors, giving freely and cheerfully to make this work possible. If you've been impacted by these podcast conversations and are inspired to invest in the future of CAC's mission and work, twice per year, we invite your financial support. To contribute, go to cac.org donate to make a gift. Thank you so much. Greetings. Uh, I'm Jim Finley. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Uh, greetings, everyone, and welcome to our time here together uh, seeking spiritual guidance from the Christian mystic St. Teresa of Avila. We come now in this session to the seventh and final mansion of the soul um, in the ways that she bears witness uh, to the profound uh, mystical communion with God that is realized in this mansion. And so I, I thought it would be helpful for us as we come to the end here of our reflections on Teresa to um, uh, step back to um, attempt to kind of take in the spiritual worldview of contemplative Christianity uh, that we saw in Thomas Merton and in January, and we do St. John on the Cross next, and all these Christian mystics. Uh, because it's, it's, in, it's the light of God shining out from this vision illumines the path they mark out for us, along which is this unitive mystical state of Christ consciousness, God consciousness, is realized. And uh, so in this passage, I'll only be quoting two passages, really, by giving preference to this um, reflection. Um, uh, uh, hopefully, that will help you to take in this vision. Uh, we need to be, uh, so important to be a patient with this, because it's, it, it takes a while for the breadth or depth or richness of this vision to kind of prayerfully soak into us. So it starts becoming our way of seeing uh, through our own eyes what Christ saw and all that he saw, which is this mystery of incarnate infinity, this mystery of the generosity of God. And um, the path then along which his vision is consummated. These mystics are marking out for us. And so, um, in the light of this attempt here to step back and take in this vision, I invite you to join me in going back and reflecting on how Teresa began all of this at the, be at the very beginning of um, finding our way into the first mansion of the soul. And to see there in that first mansion, really the first three mansions, is that the, 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 the directional flow or the qualitative or tonal quality of the, the, the journey had about it the, the sense of our sincere intentions 
to respond to the call of God uh, coming to us from the depths of the seventh innermost mansion of the soul that opens out upon God's heaven in us, beyond us, reaching out mysteriously to touch and awaken our hearts in the midst of our confusion, in the midst of our wayward ways. And so being so awakened to the path, this, uh, through whatever circumstances the awakening came to us, through love for the love lost or suffering or joy or creativity, however it touched us to personally turn towards God, we set out then to seek God, uh, to kind of find our way with God's help to become ever closer, ever more one with God. And as we engage in this sincerity, for example, committing ourselves to a daily quiet time with God, for Lexio Divina, reflective meditation and prayer, and so on, and then to let that carry over into more Christ-like attitudes as we go through our whole day, um, we realize that we there meet what she refers to as the reptiles, which are really internalized habits of the mind and heart that compromise or in some ways violate our fidelity to this infinite love of God that's unexplainably faithful to us in the midst of our wayward ways. And so we struggle with this and uh, we work at it and we fall down and get up and start over again. And, and through that fidelity, through that constancy, we grow in character. We grow in stabilizing the internalized grace which is lived as, as our faith, the measure which is love, and um, uh, in which we look forward to uh, with hope. So we have this faith, we have this love, and we have this hope that when we die, we're not annihilated but consummated. It will cross through the veil of death into glory, into unmediated infinite union with the infinite love of God is our destiny, our ultimate destiny. And uh, this the sincerity of seeking to live this way in prayer carried over into daily life day by day is really holiness. It's, it's really um, kind of the essence of everything, really, that to, to the, the currency of the land is holiness, the sincere desire to continue seeking to draw closer to God who guides us and draws us ever onward, sustains us and throughout the learning curve of our life up to our last breath. So then we saw in the fourth mansion, beginning of the fourth mansion, it's in the midst of the sustained sincerity over time, there comes a certain moment at which we begin to realize that as we sit in prayer, embodying our intention to reach out and draw closer to God, more faithful to God, the, the, the energy stream, that intentionality toward the hidden uh, center of union with God, one with us in the seventh mansion, opening out upon paradise, we begin to realize the flow of an energy coming from the opposite direction. That is, we begin to realize it's not our sincere intentions of seeking God, but rather in the midst of our seeking, we discover God is seeking us, not just seeking us, but rather 
God, and this is the subtlety of the fourth mansion, which begins the beginning of the, 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 the mystical, which he calls divine favors. We begin to sense that the infinite presence of God is with great delicacy flowing into the intimate immediacy of our very presence, beginning to bring about a certain state of a kind of transubjective communion, a certain kind of mysterious oneness with God, of God's presence flowing into, uniting and merging with the intimacy of our very presence into the beginnings of a unitive state. And uh, in this unitive state, which is a kind of an event, and this may this is so delicate that this influx of this love may go on for quite a while before we get subtle enough or delicate enough to calibrate our heart to a fine enough scale to discern that it's occurring. Because this is not God coming into us mediated through our belief, mediated through our feelings, mediated through our convictions. This is the, 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 pre, the unmediated presence of very God flowing into the very presence of ourself in this communal state. And it evokes a sense of absorption, a kind of a quiet amazement, like you kind of hold still to kind of take in, like what's happening here? And you fall into a, a stance of the quiet. And the quiet is the freely chosen stance of responding to the heart's recognition that the time has come to love more and think less. That is, it's actively choosing to be as, to, to surrender yourself over to this love that's touching you, pouring into you with such great delicacy. And so I honestly think, and I guess I'm sharing this with my own sense of when Thomas, going to Thomas Merton for spiritual direction at the monastery, when I was right out of high school. So I think of Teresa, imagine you could have Teresa of Avila for your spiritual director, wouldn't that be great? And once a month you'd meet with her and talk and she would sit with you. And if you were in the first three mansions, I think you'd, you'd sense that she was very patient, uh, very accepting, very open, kind of where are you at in your growing desire to be faithful to God in prayer, faithful to God in life, faithful to do God's will. But also, she would be leaning in, also looking. So when she began to pick up intimations that you were alluding to this new phase of this intermingling of your presence with the presence of God, she would encourage you, I think, you know, to not be afraid that God's infinitely in love with you. And maybe, just maybe, that God's decided not to wait until you're dead to begin to grant to you in some obscure but intimate manner the celestial union of infinite union with the infinite love of God, even while you're here on this earth. And uh, to trust it and then to discern uh, in your heart, you know, the, the, the authenticity of this and heightening your integrity to your fidelity, integrity to your sensitivity, integrity to your um, doing God's will in all things. And that's where these amazing transformations start to occur, where the water, this imagery of water like flowing into you from some unseen, not from afar, through effort, but without effort, 
like flooding into you quietly from some unseen place in the depths of yourself, the seventh mansion. And your heart, like a fountain, expanding to contain the water that flows into it, you realize your heart's being enlarged to divine proportions, that this infinite love is transforming you into itself with such great delicacy. In the fifth mansion, um, this process, ever so subtle, ever so delicate, ever so intimate, ever so personal, for each person as he or she experiences it, in the fifth mansion, this influx of this love becomes so pure or becomes so atmospherically delicate that the reflective intentional self being infused in this unitive way um, can no longer be the basis for what's occurring. And the reflective intentional self goes into a kind of a deep sleep. And really, it's a kind of a mystical death because really you're dying of love. And so the reflective self, intentional self, the physical, emotional self, and its intentionality it reaches the influx point of union. And in that union, in a sense, in the seventh mansion, which is really the point at which God's infinite love is giving itself to the intimate immediacy of your a very presence, like the infinite presence presencing itself in a communal state of presence under presence in a presence of this sense of this union, uh, the obscurity of this communion. So when the moment passes and reflective consciousness illumined by grace returns, you don't know for sure if anything happened, but something did happen because you're different. You're different. You, you have a conviction in your heart that you were in God and God was in you. You have a deepening desire to only do God's will in all things. And a butterfly with tattered wings that you can't live on your own terms. You can only live on terms of this love that's taking you so unexplainably to itself in the depths of the silence, in the depths of your body, in the depths of your sad and all of that. And so then in the sixth mansion, this, this process, instead of a momentary state moves us into this living in the uh, luminosity of the state of the fifth mansion. In the sixth mansion, this unitive state starts happening all the time in an ever more habitual way, back and forth across every aspect of your life. And the mark of this is rapture, rapture meaning that in this prayer, that God accesses you and in a sense carries you off to to into this into this union so in that rapture you're carried off into this celestial communion where god can grant um, favors and awarenesses of the things of god and each time you return from the rapture you know that what was so clear in the rapture is so beyond anything you could ever explain to anybody and uh it starts touching every part of your life, your relationship with others, your health, your soul, and every, every part of your life is being pervasively woven into this um, transformative state of dying of love until nothing will be left of you but love. And since God is love and you are who you are in the love of God, the union is mysteriously being consummated within yourself in the, day, in the midst of the day by day. She also says, don't forget, 
in the third mansion, in the beginning of the fourth mansion, I think. She says, you know, sister, she's talking to the sisters of Carmel. And she says, you know, we're cloistered nuns, but married people experience this in their marriage. See, this happens as it happens. It's in the midst of the marriage, in the midst of parenting, in the midst of the ending of a marriage, in the midst of the child going off here or there, in the midst of a, of a, of a ministry or of a service to the community, or in the midst of art, or in the midst of poetry, in the midst of creativity, in the midst of the call to spend long times alone, in a, you know, in a, whatever it is, that you're, you're kind of in the midst of the givens of your life, which is the occasion for this transformative event that's so unexplainably happening to you. And here we can see the value of having Teresa, because where can we go to have someone help us understand this? Where can we go to have someone to help us discern the integrity of this, the, the validity of it grounded in the fact that we're becoming ever more humble, ever more grateful, ever more sensitive, ever more patient, ever more trusting, ever more in this transformed uh, state. And um, so what happens then, uh, and also visions and locutions, meaning you're in this, kind of, you know, just this, unexplainably uh, diaphanous sense for the living and the dead and the spirit. You're just in this uh, transubjective state of consciousness and celestial openness in the concreteness of your life. Like this. Pardon me for speaking of it in this way, but I, I can only poetically allude to it. But in you, it's in spiritual direction, it would be how you stammering to find the words to express this or to realize that she's talking about something that you've had intimations of in your own life. So now in the seventh mansion, let's say this is, you're living this way and this can go on for quite a while, this delectable death, this way, you could die this way. I mean, what a, what a life. But what is the seventh mansion then? In the seventh mansion then, in the light of this, which creates the context for the seventh mansion, in the second chapter, there's a, she speaks about, she gives two images to help us understand the distinction between the six. By the way, and others, like the, the, the consistency of her subtle clarity. Remember how, we, how we, uh, she helps us to see as we move from one mansion to the next, we pass through a door. And the door has three aspects to it. It's prayer the intimacy of prayer, humility, and experiential self-knowledge. She says the distinction between the sixth and seventh mansion is the one distinction that has no door. So it's almost a kind of an opening up or the flowering or the blossoming or consummation of the sixth mansion into this state of a mystical marriage, being married to God in this unitive state. And so here's your distinction then between the, the sixth mansion and then in the in the, the the seventh mansion, chapter three. We might say that union is as if the ends of two wax candles were joined, so that the light they give is one. The wick and the wax and the light are all one. Yet afterwards, the one candle can be perfectly well separated from the other, and the candles become two again, or the wick may be withdrawn from the wax. In other words. In this, sixth, in, the, in this phase, it's just this union is occurring. 
but there remains intact in me that here I am, this flame, this, the flame of me, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. And here's God's flame. And what's happening is God's flame and my flame burn in a communal flame, a communal flame in which the distinction between me and God and my nothingness without God uh, remains. She continues. But here, that is now in the seventh mansion, it is like rain falling from the heavens into a river or a spring. There is nothing but water there, and it is impossible to divide or separate the water belonging to the river from that which fell from the heavens. The session I was sharing where it was so great, Mirabai Star joined us, and we referred together. She referred to this passage. In other words, how I put it to me, it seems, there is a place of union so com obscurely complete that you and God mutually disappear as dualistically other than each other. Uh, and I think what happens here in this state, another way I think to poetically get at this too, it helps me to think about it. She says that in this state, raptures cease. Why would raptures cease? Because if a rapture is being carried off by God into the realm of God in the seventh mansion, you can only be carried off to the extent you're still not inseparably one in that communion of the seventh mansion, this, this celestial transsubjective communion of ourself and God. But if you now abide in that communion, there's nothing to be carried off to. That is, there's the rapturous quality of the divinity, of the intimate immediacy, of the unfolding of each new moment in the circumstance in which you find yourself. We'll put it another way, still getting at this mysterious point. It is as if what happens here, it seems to me, is that the, the self, when I say, when you say I, when I speak, it's not the me and my ego consciousness, nor is it the me illumined by faith seeking to be ever more one with God, nor is it me experiencing the influx of God pouring into me, but rather the me now becomes the transsubjective communion of the seventh mansion itself, in which in some mysterious way, uh, your words are your words and yet they're no longer just your words at all. It is now the words of God resonating in your words, touching hearts. And I think really, uh, see, this is why it isn't, it isn't, it just simply, it isn't your um, emotion. It isn't your affective communion in ego, nor is it illumined by, nor is it, nor is it, but rather it is somehow the very uh, effective intimacy of your own heart is in some way the intimacy of the heart of God as one heart, like one mind, one life, one love, one body, one oneness like this. And this is why I think this is how the lineage is handed on in these people, is, is that, uh, that, that, that in some sense to be in the presence of such a person, you center in the presence of God because this person has no ego. 
or not put it that way, it isn't that they don't have an ego, but, but rather the ego itself has been subsumed by and permeated by the divinity of the ordinariness of the human experience in the world. And um, here then I'd like to read the second passage, which is the introduction to the interior castle. The introduction, now that we've been sitting with the interior castle, it's helpful in hindsight to look back to see how she introduces it. I think we touched on this way back when we were starting. So you got to realize here, she's writing this introduction as a seventh mansion person. And there was this dialogue, this providential dialogue, in which she was asked, would you please write what you've learned about this union with God in prayer? And so she's writing as a seventh mansion person. And uh, here's what she says, introduction or forward, whatever, for the forward. Few tasks, she's sitting down to starting to write this. By the way, I think I mentioned this before when I got to go to Avila through the kindness of Carolyn Mace and I was in the monastery. There were, they had a facsimile there of the, of the interior castle. It's just, and she wrote it longhand, first draft. You know, it's kind of this, like a, the sacramental of the purity of the sharing of her. And here's her entry. Here's how she starts as a seventh mansion person, which helps us understand what it's like to be such a person. In our own learning curve toward this transformation as God wills. Few tasks which I have been commanded to undertake by obedience have been so difficult as this present one of writing about matters relating to prayer. For one reason, because I do not feel that the Lord is giving me either the spirituality or the desire for it. As I want to start this, but I, I don't honestly think that the Lord uh, has given me um, the spirituality to do it, and certainly has not given me the desire to do it. I want to do it, but I don't want to do it. For another reason why it's so difficult, because for the last three months I've been suffering from such noises and weaknesses in the head that I find it troublesome to write even about necessary business. That is, she's more advanced in years, she's getting close to her own death. Uh, the Inquisition was going on. There was the foundations going on. There was her ongoing serious health problems. And uh, she just felt she was just beyond herself in kind of the fragility of her day-by-day -day experience of herself in her life. And um, so it's even hard to write about necessary business, correspondence and keeping up with her emails kind of thing. Even that's a bit much, much less writing something like this, of such profundity or depth. But as I know, strength arising from obedience has a way of simplifying things. It's a lovely statement. That if, if I don't know if I can do it, but if I believe in my heart God's calling me to do it, then I know that with God's grace I can do what I'm not up to do, which makes the writing of her work a work of love. The work of the, sh the sharing of letting God speak through her to help us. As a way of simplifying things would seem impossible, my will very gladly resolves to attempt this task, although the prospect seems to cause me physical nature great distress. For the Lord has not given me strength enough to enable me to wrestle continually with both sickness and with occupations of many kinds, 
without feeling a great physical strain. May he who has helped me by doing other more difficult things help me with this. And she goes on to elaborate her woes about writing this, pointing out she's already written her life, her spiritual autobiography, and she's also written The Way of Perfection. And she goes on to say, I don't know if I have anything more to say. I think maybe I said it all. And I don't even remember what I said. And that's another reason for this. And then she goes on and writes it, and we're all so glad that she did. What's very funny about her is at the very end, when it's all finished, she says, uh, I realized at the beginning I complained about how hard it would be. But then she says, you know what? It wasn't as hard as I thought. It was, uh, you know, the grace, like the flow of it. She was in the flow of it. And you can feel it when you read it, that flow. So I have one last thought as an encouraging word here for us with Teresa and with all these mystics. And the thought is this. Insofar as you are on this path, let's imagine too this person who has come to this state of mystical marriage, this unitive state where you're on your way to being so drawn to it. When you look back to a time in your life where the spiritual awakening had not yet occurred, Maybe you were all just kind of lost in the intensity and the complexities and struggles of the exteriority of things. It was there that you were awakened. How so? Because God, from the innermost seventh mansion of the soul, opening out in the celestial oneness with God in paradise, saw you there, came to you in your confusion, and touched your heart. And when you were touched and you started to turn toward God in sincerity, I think I'm going to pray every day. I'm going to meditate. I'm going to try to be the person I know Christ is calling me to be. And uh, overtaken by habits of the mind and heart that kept bringing you down, bringing you down. And you sought to, every time you gave up, you were sought to start all over again. Why? <clears throat> Because from the innermost seventh mansion, God was touching you and sustaining you and renewing you in the midst of your ongoing struggles and faltering ways. <clears throat> and so too, with each step of the way, unbeknownst to you, how you were already being reached out to in your very being, where all things were flowing from God sustaining us and flowing in the awakenings along the way from the very earliest beginnings. And therefore, here's the final thought. Because this is so, then I can see how God befriended me in my confusion. I can learn to be at home with the confused. I can learn to be at home with the lost. I can be at home with those who have no idea yet how loved they are by God and takes one to know one. I too, as long as I'm on this earth, I'm a pilgrim of the absolute. I too, and I'm at home with them because God was at home with me and I'm at home with them. And just maybe, just maybe in the authenticity of my presence and all of its complexities, just maybe my presence might allow some of this light to shine through and touch them, touch them, touch them. And this is how Jesus lived. 
But Jesus lived in them. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. And uh, Jesus walked the streets of a complicated, busy, uh, beautiful, divine, and sometimes cruel, brutal, and unfair and scary world. And so this is where I think it all comes full circle, really, uh, for us. Because it's, it's never other than where I am right now as I share these words with the givens of my life. We're all in the midst of something. And it's never other than where you are in the midst of yours. And um, it's waiting for us there to be opened up to that, surrender to that, be open to that. But that God has begun this work will bring it to completion. And so then it's a, a grace then to sit in Teresa's presence. And in his presence, we can sense we're in the presence of God. So let's end then with meditation. I invite you to uh, sit straight and fold your hands in prayer and bow. And repeat after me. Be still and know I am God. Be still and know I am. Be still and know. Be still. Be.
Wow. We'll slowly say the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, now and forever. Amen. Mary, Mother of Contemplatives, pray for us. St. John of the Cross, pray for us. St. Teresa of Avila, uh, pray for us. So this ends in our reflections on the castle. There's a few more sessions coming up here. Kirsten's going to be, we're going to be talking about the 6th and 7th mansion together. Uh, I think, I'm so delighted to hear that just like Mirabai joined us, Richard Rohrs agreed uh, to join us to be interviewed by Kirsten for a, a talk, which is great. So honored that he chose to do that. And uh, we'll take a break for a while. And then probably in January, I think we'll start again uh, next to uh, St. John of the Cross. Uh, we find our way to God in a journey through a dark night to this love. So uh, peace and blessings to all of you. Until next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics a podcast created by the Centre for Action and Contemplation. We're planning to do episodes that answer your questions. So if you have a question, please email us at podcasts at cac.org or send us a voicemail at cac.org forward slash voicemails. All of this information can be found in the show notes. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.